This morning I want to I intend on talking to you about the restocking fee. <clears throat> Praise God, that's, that's my intention. Praise God, we'll just pray, we'll see what direction the Holy Spirit takes us this morning. But if you have your Bibles, just real quickly, we do want to read the passages of Scripture, this being Palm Sunday, that where we read in the Word about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem prior to His crucifixion. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 21. And I'm going to begin the reading with verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them over the road. And the multitudes went... uh, before, and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Amen. Now turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, we read a little bit of Mark's account of the same event. Mark 11, starting with verse 1, says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage, and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you. As soon as you have entered, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Uh, Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied to the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jerusalem, or to Jesus, and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And you know, Jesus, this week of of his passion, when Jesus was going to come and be crucified, it was the culmination of all that the Father had told him to do. Remember, we've we've said, we've quoted several times in the past uh, couple of months that Jesus said that I only speak the things that the Father tells me. I only do those things which I see my Father see. So you understand this, there's a, a very accurate representation of God the Father in Jesus. Amen? That the, that the characteristics of the Son are like the Father. If Jesus spoke, if, if Jesus' will, if you see Jesus healing, and the Bible says that He healed all those, that you know, every place He went, He healed people, that, then we obviously know that it's the will of God the Father to heal, right? If we see, if we, so if we hear Jesus speak it, we see Jesus do it, it's an accurate representation of the Father. And Jesus was sent into the earth for the purpose of redeeming mankind. And we've spent, and we've discussed this, and you, and you understand that the word redeemed, that God's plan of redemption 
to see if you redeem something or if you restore something. If you buy an old car that is in need of restoration, you, know, you buy a classic car, Pastor Cheyenne, we, we shared the story for Pastor Cheyenne had a 1966 Mustang convertible that she sold on eBay for the startup money for this church. And somebody bought that car, and they've took it, and I'm sure that if you saw it now, it probably it looks, the resemblance of it, it, you can tell that it's been restored. In other words, somebody's took it, and they've taken it, that car, and they've uh, put, they did body work where body work needed to be done, but you, and, and they've put new paint, they've put new upholstery, and they've attempted, but you understand, when, when we call that restored, but you understand, that's not restored. That's refurbished. Restored would be take it, melt down everything in it, find the original the original molds for the body panels, the original dies, the original molds that the frames were stamped out with, go back to the factory, buy the original upholstery, and, and just absolutely remake it. Because sometimes our perception of what redemption or restoration is, because you understand this, taking, taking an old 66 Ford Mustang and putting a new fresh coat of paint, doing body work, because you understand you can restore what they call restore an automobile and you can put a different a, a color of paint on it. They didn't even have clear coat back in 1966. I guarantee you that car's probably got a nice thick layer of clear coat on it right now. But you understand this, is that all that that's been done, it's been, an, you know, it's been a change done to it, but it's not been restored. Because restoration would have took the complete recreation of it. What's your point? Pastor, my point is, is that for Jesus, for God, for the will of the Father to be done, for us to be redeemed, for us to be restored. And remember, redeemed means to be bought back. And Pastor Earl, we use this example. If the Bible, if his Bible, if your Bible fell off the pulpit into the floor and you picked it up and you placed it over on this monitor or over on that railover, is it, has it been restored or redeemed? No, it's been placed in a different position. But if you redeem and you restore it, it's put back in its original position. And so you understand that Jesus, He's coming in, and what he is, this week of what He's going to do, what He's going to accomplish on the cross is the redemption of mankind, the restoration. And you understand over in 2 Corinthians, what does the Word say? The Word says that if any man is in Christ, if any man is in, and let's just put this way, if any man is in Christ, in the anointed one, or in his anointing, you are a new creation. You're a new creature. You're not an old sinner saved by grace. And you say, oh, pastor, we've heard that before. But yet, but there's some people that have heard it and they still haven't got a hold of it. You are not the same being that you were before you made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. Because when you became born again, the old man you were, you just didn't get a refurb. You didn't just get, you didn't just clean your mouth up and change your clothes and get a different haircut and, and, and try to dress yourself up on the outside. Amen. You, that did not, the unfortunate thing is, that's what's happened in, in, in a lot of the churches today. Amen. They concentrate, you understand this, too many people concentrate on cleaning the outside up and trying to make it look like something that conforms when you understand that you can be, what did Jesus say about the Pharisees? He said, oh, you, you've cleaned it up on the outside and everything, but you know, on the outside you know, you're whitewashed tombs, but on the inside you're full of dead man's bones. In other words, you're a real pretty monument and you make a real pretty monument people can walk by and go, man, that's a real pretty monument. That's a real pretty mausoleum over there, but guess what? It's full of rottenness and decay and, and the filth of decayed human remains. What we need to be concentrating on is getting the inside right, amen, and, and if what's on the inside will change the outside, right? It'll come out, and you understand this, is that God don't care whether you wear a three-piece suit to church or if you're wearing t-shirts and, and a t-shirt and jeans, amen? amen? It, it doesn't matter to Him because it's what's on the inside, and if you can get what's on the inside changed, it'll manifest on the outside,
And that doesn't mean we're all going to dress the same, we're all going to have the same taste in clothes, amen? It means everything that needs to be covered ought to be covered. Amen? amen. Well, you know, the, the, the Bible says, you know, that women ought to dress in modesty. You know, that the, the older women, you know, let's just put it this way, men ought to dress modest too. I've seen some men come to church that weren't dressed modest. But you understand, it doesn't mean we're all going to have the same taste in clothes. Amen? It's going to be different. But Jesus, the, the will of the Father, it was to come back, it was to redeem mankind, it was to restore, and it was to, instead of just taking you and polishing you up on the outside and changing what you look on the outside, it was on the inside. And you understand, it's the real you, the real you is your spirit. Amen? You are a spirit. You live in a body and you have a soul. And so this is so what Jesus was making preparation for and what this entry was coming into Jerusalem was it's going to end up that He was going to die on the cross, shed His blood to make the new birth available to you so that just like taking that Mustang and if you took it and you melted all the metal down and you just started with the original dyes and molds and started all over in a new engine block, you understand that that's what's happening to your spirit when you become alive in Christ because... You're being redeemed. You're being restored. You're being bought back from corruption. Amen. And so what Jesus did, He came into Jerusalem to redeem mankind. That was His plan. It's the will of the Father. Amen. And you understand that there's only one place. This is just a little tidbit that will help some folks. Because how many of us we hear people that are praying and they think they're real religious praying, Oh, Father, if it's Your will. Lord, if it's Your will. If it's Your will. You understand there was only one time that the Lord Jesus Christ ever prayed and said, if it's your will. Amen. And that was when he was praying a prayer of consecration in the garden to submit to the, to the will of the Father to go on to the cross. Amen. No place else when Jesus, our pattern, our example, the one we're supposed to pattern ourselves, ever did Jesus pray, oh, Father, if it's your will. Why? Because he knew the Father's will. Right. How did he know the Father's will? Well, he was full of the Word. <laughs> Amen. He was the Word, wasn't he? But Jesus knew the Word, and then he also was led by the Holy Ghost. And so when we pray, we should, you, you know, and you, you know, you need to find out. Read the Bible. Find out what God's will is. No one ever needs to pray, Lord, if it's your will, heal me. It is His will. Be healed. Lord, if it's your will, meet my needs. It is His will. Your needs will be met. Just stay faithful, speak the Word, and do the Word. Be obedient to do the Word. But you understand, we have been redeemed. What Jesus did on the cross, it was not just the forgiveness of sins. So many churches and so many people, we present what Jesus did on the cross simply as the forgiveness of sins. And that's great. You understand this, that redemption is a package deal that has lots of things included in it, but the forgiveness of sins is, is just one. And thank God for it. But you understand that, uh, that, just let's be honest, under the law they could go make sacrifice and their sins were covered, right? So if all God did was send Jesus and I to shed His blood just to pay for your sins... And just to get your sins forgiven. And you understand, oh, Pastor, he died, Jesus died so we go to heaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jesus died so you go to heaven. You understand that, G, that, that under the law, amen, and you can study this out in the Word, you understand that when someone died, the, the, the New Testament, so many times you read the old King James Version, and it talks about hell, and it talks about Jesus' spirit being, you know, you'll not suffer your Holy One, see corruption, neither will you leave His spirit in hell. And we think hell, we think flames, fire, and place of torment. And it's literally the word Hades, and it simply means the, the, the unseen realm of the dead. And if you listen to how Jesus taught, and, Jesus, and you understand Jesus, he taught in parables, but remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? That was not a parable. Say, oh, pastor, how do you know it wasn't a parable? Because in parables, Jesus never used a person's name. 
And when Jesus was teaching this, Jesus said, the rich man, and he kept him anonymous, and he said, Lazarus, and he gave a name. And so that tells you that it's not a parable. It's an actual account. And in that account, Jesus talks about that the rich man died. Some people might say, well, how come he didn't tell the rich man's name? Well, how much, how much uh, would it minister to you to know that your uncle Jim Bob that was rich is dying and burning in hell right now? Amen. Huh? Yeah. The story you're about to hear is true. It's just some of the names have been changed or omitted to protect the family of those innocent people. Right? Amen? But you understand that in that story, Jesus said... The Lord Jesus said, and I know there's speculation, and I know this cuts contrary to a lot of the people that are in my camp, whatever my camp is, but Jesus Christ did not go to the place of torment in hell. He went to Hades, the unseen realm of the dead. The Bible says that when he died, he went to hell. And the King James Version says hell, but you get your other translation, they'll say Hades, and look up Hades, and it just means the unseen realm of the dead. Well, what is the unseen realm of the dead? It can, if you believe Jesus, can we believe Jesus? Jesus said that, that the rich man died and in hell, Hades, he lifted up his eyes and he was in torment. There was flames of fire and he was in torment and he, was ba- and he looked across a vast gulf, an abyss. Some translations say an abyss. And he looked into what? Abraham's bosom. And he saw the rich man there in Abraham's bosom and was asking for, oh, just send Lazarus to give me a little drop of water on my tongue. Now, I understand that especially if you've come from some of the camps I've had and you've heard it preached and and hammered, oh, Jesus had to die and go to hell and suffer and, and burn in flames for you. No, He didn't. He did not. Because understand this, when Jesus, can we again, can we believe Jesus' word? Can we take Jesus at His word? Okay, so you understand in the story that Jesus told Lazarus and the, and Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man, they're both in the same realm... Just it's separated by an abyss, right? And so you have the rich man who's in torment. Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. And so could we say that that's paradise? Because remember when Jesus, after he entered into Jerusalem, went through the week of the Passion, died on the cross, it says you know, that he descended into the lower parts of the earth. You understand Jesus, understand this. Remember, does this sound familiar? When Jesus was hanging on the cross between two thieves, and the one thief said, Look, you know, the one thief ridiculed him, he said, oh, if you're the Son of God, why don't you get us out here, blah, blah, blah. He was shooting his mouth off. And the other guy said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What did Jesus tell him? Well, i got to go to hell and burn for two or three days, and then I'll come back and get you. No, he said, this day you shall be with me in paradise. Not in torment. Paradise. Abraham's bosom, because you understand this. I think there's just been a little bit of theological confusion on the, on the issue here, is that you understand that death is, spiritual death is separation from God, and that even though God gave in different dispensations of time what could, men could use for righteousness, and we taught on this a couple weeks ago, if you didn't hear this, is on Wednesday night, you need to get the CDs, get the podcast, it's called, you know, Are You Legal? is that God has always provided a means of righteousness for mankind that culminated with the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so, you understand this, is that even though people were righteous before God, what He required of them, they were still sinful. They were still, they were still sinners because they had, the new birth wasn't available. And so they still could not enter into the presence of God. Thus, Abraham's bosom, paradise, the unseen place of the dead, where one place, one part of it is a place of torment that's separated by a gulf, and on the other side is a place of paradise where Abraham and the patriarchs of God were, right? Amen? Can we see that in the Word? And so you understand, but the, even at that, those people, they were spared be, you know, they were they were not in the place of torment, but they were still separated from God, because they were still spiritually dead. 
And I know that might be hard for us. Oh, Pastor, but if they're alive and they're just in an unseen realm, you understand that spiritual death, you still have a spirit. You still have, Lost people still have a spirit. Okay, it's just dead before God. It's dead. They exist, but it's dead before God. And so you understand that even though these types and these forms of righteousness were made available and people were spared the going to torment for, because that was for those who were disobedient. Those, okay, let's put it this way. If a person was a Jew under the law and they could go to the temple and they could make a sacrifice, okay, they were righteous because they had submitted themselves and they were obedient to the law of God that I need to go to the temple and make a sacrifice. Okay, so if that person died, they were going to go to the place of paradise, not to heaven, but to paradise, right? And so if someone else, though, was, was a Jew under the law and they refused to go to the temple and make sacrifice and they died unrighteous, they went to the place of torment, right? Amen? Can we, can we see that? But you understand that both of them, one's in torment, one's in paradise, but they're both still separated from God. Spiritually not alive unto God. And so what Jesus came was to redeem to restore, to take the spirit of man and restore it back to its original intention, its original condition, where it was an exact duplicate of the Spirit of God. Amen. Amen. You understand that that is what Jesus did, was to come back because in the, what was the original intent? God said, let us make man, let us create him in our image and in our likeness. And so God, He, you know, he made a little clone of Himself, if you will, Adam. The, uh, Adam, a son of God. That's what Luke says, isn't it? Was it Luke uh, 3.38? Is that what it is? Luke 3.38 or 3.35? It's when it's going through the genealogies of Jesus and it goes all the way back from Joseph all the way back down to it says, it says Seth the son of Adam, Adam the son of God. Is that Luke 3.38? Amen. Is that, where, is that where it's at? Amen. So you understand Luke 3.38 that God's original intention uh, through what Jesus was going to do was to get us back to that original spot. And so Jesus... And so, like I said, the title today was The Restocking Fee. How many of y'all know that if you buy something and you want to take it back to the store and they're going to put it back in its original spot, that there's a restocking fee? A lot of places will charge you a restocking fee. Huh? Especially if it's a special order or something, right? How many of y'all know you were a special order? Amen. There's not a more special order than, than mankind. And so God knew if I want to get mankind restored or restocked, if you will, back to his, its original place, there had to be a restocking fee. Amen. God couldn't just pretend like the transgression didn't happen because he would have violated his, his holiness. Amen. You understand God, that, that, that there was a penalty. And so Jesus coming and dying on the cross, shedding the blood, you understand that Jesus is the door to the kingdom. What did Jesus say? Jesus, Jesus said, you know, what Jesus did on the cross is we need to move, the church needs to move beyond that, not that you invalidate it, but you understand this. Too many people have pitched their tent at the cross. Guess what? The cross is barren. The cross is empty now. The tomb, don't even keep on going past the tomb. Go past the tomb and realize that the tomb's empty. Okay? You need to realize this. Some people, they've went to Pentecost and got, woo, got filled with the Holy Ghost and pitched their tent at Pentecost, but you need to move on past Pentecost and realize that right now we are in the kingdom of God and it's been available and the door of it was what Jesus did on the cross and what He accomplished when He rose from the grave. That gave us access going on to Pentecost and getting filled with the Holy Ghost and having the Spirit of God breathed back into our, our redeemed human spirit. Because you understand that when Adam died, Adam was a Spirit-filled being. Amen. You need to realize that. When God created man out of the dust of the earth, that He breathed into him. 
And he became a, a living spirit. He became a living being. And so you understand, what is the, what is the, the breath of God represent in the New Testament? The Holy Spirit. So when God breathed into Adam, Adam was a spirit-filled man. His fellowship with God was unbroken and he was spirit-filled. So what Jesus did on the cross was the door to get the cross and the empty tomb was the doorway that got us made access for us to be redeemed, to have a reborn spirit, to become a new creature in Christ Jesus again. Then after you were, became a new wineskin, if you will, you became eligible, you became qualified because of what Jesus did for you, for you to get filled with the new wine, for you to get filled with the Spirit. So you're back in that condition now of the original intent that you have a reborn Spirit, that you've been refilled with the Spirit of God, amen, baptized with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, and now you're a, you became a vessel that was suitable for God's use. Thank God for the cross. Thank God for the empty tomb. Thank God for Pentecost. But what was all of that was the means of getting us back to the original tent of us walking in and establishing the kingdom of God. Right. Amen. Don't pit, you know, we don't want to pitch our tent along the way and just stay there. You have to, you understand this. You have to visit all, you have to spiritually visit all three spots. Thank God for the cross where the blood ran down. Thank God where Jesus' blood was shed. But you understand this. The book of Hebrews tells us that the blood that was shed on the ground was just, it was symbolic of the blood that Jesus, our great high priest, took into the heavenly holiest of holies and poured out on the mercy seat before God. Thank God for the cross. Thank God for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for the empty tomb that we'll celebrate next week. Thank God for that. Thank God for Pentecost. Thank God for the upper room where the, where the Holy Spirit was poured out and God re, uh, filled us back with His Spirit to walk in His power and walk in His anointing. But we need to move on past that to where we're walking in the kingdom of God that we're reestablishing. What? What did Jesus say? Your kingdom come, your will be done on the earth just like it is in heaven. And in order for that to happen, man had to be redeemed. Man had to be made a new creature. Man had to be filled with the Holy Spirit to get your spirit back to the original condition to where you could carry out the original will and the intent of the Father on the earth. Amen? And that is just the, the, the within the kingdom of God on earth that God's will would be done on earth just like it is in heaven. Amen? And what's part of that? Being redeemed from the curse. You understand that in the two kingdoms in the world, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light, that there are those who are blessed with faithful Abraham and those who are cursed. Amen. Amen? And you need to understand, in the world, we need to realize that the church needs to realize this and begin to walk in it more so that it makes the world want what we've got. There's two things that will make the world want what the church has is, is got or supposed to have. One is, is when the church stops being hypocritical. And two-faced, you know, and just as me, you know, you know, we we met someone this week. I had the privilege of meeting with someone here in town this week, and was talking with him, and was uh, he was just sharing some of the stories that he knew, first-hand stories that he knew about celebrity ministries that you know you could name names and people with no names, and and that was just absolutely abysmal. They were people that you looked at and they'd say, "Whoa, they're a success in ministry," and why? This is why they call them a success in ministry. Because they got one of the biggest churches in town, and, and not for, not around here, not around here, but because they got a church that'll seat five, six, seven thousand people. You know, they live in a, a, a mansion, multi-million-dollar mansion. Oh, they you know they got all these people coming. They got a big church, big numbers, big offering coming in. Their success in ministry. What yardstick are we using when we measure people's success by that? 
Sounds to me like you're using the devil's yardstick. And that's what they used to say when I was a kid growing up in church. I grew up and they said, don't use the devil's yardstick to try to measure yourself. Because it'll always make you look better than what you are. Amen. Well, what did Jesus say? It seems to me like Jesus had a conversation in the book of Revelations. John uh, recorded a conversation that Jesus had with some churches. that said, you think that you're rich and you got it made and you got this and you got that. I tell you, you're wretched, poor, naked, and you're just disgusting to look at. Because you ain't got the thing. But tell them the stories about these churches that... Quote, they're successful because why? Because we, the church, we, we, you know, we use the devil's yardstick to measure people's success. Amen. I like it. Pastor Earl told me, and it's like right now, I look out over this congregation this morning, and you know what? I am a success. The day that I heard God tell me, come to Valdosta, Georgia, and plant this church, I was a success. And I said, yes, Lord, I'll do it. I was a success. Right. It doesn't matter if there's not 100 people in the building right now. It doesn't matter if we're uh, using a 5,500-square-foot leased building right now. I don't measure my success by that. My success is my obedience to the Father because I could have a building that seats 7,000 people, and I could have a building, and, you know, and we could have money coming in and all kinds of people, a big fancy building, and guess what? If I can't keep my pants on and stay out of bed with a woman that ain't my wife, I'm a loser, I'm a failure. Oh, it's disgusting stories of these big, successful ministries. And the pastor just absolutely a whoremonger. Amen. And having visiting ministers come in and hooking them up with women in the church. Absolutely disgusting things. And you think, dear God, but the world, but the people in the church, TBN's gonna look at them and they're successful in the ministry. And they're a failure. They're an absolute failure. How many of y'all know that if, if numbers and big buildings was all that it took for, to be someone to be a spiritual success, then the NBA's got everybody beat, don't they? Amen. NFL's a, a screaming spiritual success because they got all kinds of, they got bit, man, they fill up coliseums. They're a success. College football must be a success because you think about it. There are college football stadiums that seat 115, 120,000 people. So if all we're gauging success by is the size of the building and the number of people coming in, the money coming into it, well, then the NFL is a bigger success than any church in America. Bigger spiritual success, right? I mean, but you see how ridiculous that is. But it, it's just sad that, that Jesus came. He came to redeem us from. He came to redeem us from the curse. He came so the church. If, if we're going to make the world want what we want, we've got to be legit. You know, Pastor Cheyenne. I was talking to her with her about it, and she said, she said, you know what? She goes. We have the church in America. So much of the church in America has turned the ministry. We've got our own little Hollywood, our own little Hollywood setup going on, mm-hmm. and we gauge success, how how successful are. And we've got our own celebrities, and we've got our stars. And guess what? Their life is just as big a stinking mess as the people in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen? Why and why? But, and I'll be honest with you. A lot of it is is, is because they've had celebrity. A lot of preachers that have started out good, they've had celebrity thrust upon them, and it's something that they just can't handle. And maybe sometimes they get isolated and they get pulled out into these little groups of people that are going to worship them and make them a celebrity. And they lose touch with reality because they don't have somebody to, that's going to partner up with them, going to covenant up with them, and pull them back into reality. But you understand. And so and so when the world sees that, and the world's not blind. World knows, you know. The world can read newspapers and see pastor such and such a big humongo mega church USA, you know, getting a divorce. Him and his wife both got you know affairs going on on the side. Okay, world can see it. Big pastor mega church USA, you know, 
the government's looking into him because of financial uh, you know, misconduct. And so the world sees that kind of stuff. And they, and they think, well, I don't want nothing to do it. They're just the same as people out in Hollywood. They're just the same like every other people. They're just putting on a show and doing it in the name of Jesus and doing it in the name of Christianity. So the first thing that the church is going to have to do is we're going to have to be sincere. We're going to have to be genuine. We're going to have to start worshiping God and not money. Hmm? Oh, send me an offering. He shared another story with me of two big nationally known ministers that one got up and whipped a whole, whipped a whole group of people up in Atlanta up into a frenzy. They, the ministers weren't from Atlanta, but they were having a special meeting there. Whipped them all up into a frenzy and went back down, sat down beside the other minister, said, and the other one leaned over and said, you got them where you want them. Now stand up and go tell every one of them they need to give $20. And I could, I could tell you the names right now. I ain't going to. I could tell you the names right now and you'd know both of them. And the world, and we don't think the world knows that. This is the thing. The church, we're, the church in America has become, the, the big mega church in America has become so conceited and contrite that we don't think that the world can see right through the fact that we preach about miracles but we ain't got no miracles. We preach about holiness but we don't have no holiness. We preach about a Jesus that we know a lot about but know nothing of Him. You know, I can get a book and I can read about somebody and I can, I can read a hundred biographies about Bill Gates. But guess what? I don't know Bill Gates. I can tell you where he, oh, he was born here and this happened and this happened and he did this and he's, you know, he's got this and he's got that and he and his wife, they got a, a, this association where they give out money to charitable causes and blah, blah, blah. I can tell you all, I can spew out all these facts, but I still don't know Bill Gates. And that's a lot of what's going on in the church today. We, to, you know, we talk about a Jesus that none of them know, or they used to know, but they don't hang out with him anymore. And so the church has got, we have got to get legitimate, we've got to get real, and then the other thing is, is that we need to start walking in the blessings that are available to us. We need to start walking in the blessings that are available to us, and fight, and can, the Bible says we're supposed to contend for the faith. Fight for the faith. Dig in. This is the thing. If you're believing for healing in your body, don't give up because you've, I've had hands laid on me 20 times and I ain't got it yet. Don't give up. Don't stop confessing the Word. And you should be hungry after it every day. Don't tell me you're believing God for healing and you ain't spending time in the Word looking, heal, looking up healing Scriptures and praying and meditating on it and you're not spending any time doing that. But you can watch TV or you can play a video game or you can go do your other favorite hobby. You ain't hungry for it. You're not after it. Because your time tells you what's happening. But we need to start walking in what God has promised is ours and said is available to us. And one of the things is we have been redeemed from the curse. And, and then when the world sees the church walking in that and living in that and that being manifest in our lives and we need to be hungry after it. And we, this is the thing. We don't need to be drunk. The, the, the world, the church has become so drunk and so intoxicated with things that are going on in the world that, you know, and we're so, and we've got it so good. Really, let's just look at it this way. What the rich, you know, going back to the story of the rich man, he said, oh, he said, you know what? He said, he said, I've got all kinds of goods and, 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 and stuff laid up in my bars. Oh, soul, take your ease. And the church in America, we've done that. Oh, soul, take your ease. I've got a steady paycheck. I don't really need to use my faith to believe God for anything. I've got some money in the bank. We've got some investments. We've got some this. We've got some... But guess what? Some stuff's starting to get shaken up. Ain't it? Some stuff started getting shook up a couple of years ago. But the church, we need, we need to be hungry, more hungry, more desirous for the things of God than anything else in the world. I'll just tell you this. If you've got a hobby that takes more time than what you're giving to God every week, that's your God. 
That's hard. I, I ain't going to get a whole lot of amens on this, am I, Brother Doug? Amen? That's your God. If you're spending 20 hours a week pursuing your hobby, and you're giving God 90 minutes on Sunday, Pastor, and if you don't shut up in 90 minutes, I'm going to start looking at my watch. Oh, don't, uh, that wouldn't happen in church, would it, Pastor? I've seen it here. Amen? you got yawn the clock, Pastor. Preach now. Hurry. Because 90 minutes, I'm going to start giving you the watch and making sure, getting, looking up at you and looking at my watch to let you know it's time to wrap this thing up. We want to give God 90 minutes and we want to give our pursuits and then we want to wonder why we're not getting the things of God, walking in the blessings of God. We've got to be hungry for Him. And I'm going to tell you what, there's coming a time, you all think, people are going to think pastors are prophet of doom, but I'm going to tell you what, there's coming a time, you watch and see, you just keep sucking wind and you watch and see what happens in America. And in the next 10 years, you're not going to recognize this country. And the time's going to come when someone being able to take the liberty and stand up and preach the word that they're going to want to take you to jail for it. Oh, now you can stand up and you can give a little water down, a little milk toast. I love you. You love me. We're all big Barney Christian happy family with a great big hug and a kiss to me and you. Huh? You'll be able to teach that. But you get up in the pulpit and you start speaking about moral and social issues and what God said about it. Or you can call it an alternative lifestyle, but God calls it an abomination that you need to repent and turn from. That right there will get you taken to jail. Don't tell me it won't because it's happened in European countries already. That's hate speech. That's hate speech. Wait a minute. Telling somebody what they're doing is wrong and that if they'll repent, a loving God will forgive them and bless their life. That's hate speech. Hello. But the church, we've got to start walking in. We've been, you know, we have been redeemed. Go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 3. Amen. Glory to God. I don't know about you, but I'm getting encouraged. Praise God. We've been made new creatures for this, for the purpose of of doing advancing the kingdom of God. Amen. It is all about the kingdom of God. If we if we've got to begin the church. We have got to have a wake up call and realize. And and let's just be real honest. I'll, I'll be real honest with you. the the transition The transition the church in America. Can Pastor just? I'm just going to talk to you a little bit this morning. Okay, I'm just going to share some stuff with you. The church in America for so long. Has we have mixed our faith and patriotism together, and that's wrong. It's wrong. I'm gonna tell you what. It's disgusting to me to walk into Bible stores, to bookstores, and uh, and to see Barack Obama Bible covers. Make me want to throw up on multiple levels. Okay, he's our president, and we're obligated to pray for him and pray that he'll make godly decisions, and pray for his, his safety, that God will, uh, will protect him, because there's kooks out there that want to kill him, and they'd wreck this country. You want to see America turned upside down and tore all apart, you let, you let our president get shot and killed. You talk about race riots and a race war in this country. And you understand this, I don't give a, I don't give a flip what color someone is. What color is a spirit anyway? Okay? So it has absolutely nothing to do with this man's race, but it's his politics. Okay, and so, but you understand this. I also was equally uncomfortable and disgusted to go into Christian bookstores and see pictures of George Bush with Jesus standing behind him. Okay, well, why? why? Well, do I believe President Bush was a godly man? I don't. I don't know the man. I don't know him. I know that he had a reputa- had a religious reputation. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, but I don't like. Mixing this, you understand this as believers, and this is why we're really supposed to be kingdom-minded. Is because our first allegiance should be to the kingdom of heaven on earth and to our King Jesus. 
Okay? I am a son of God that happens to live in America and have the rights bestowed upon me and, and the, I have the privileges and the burdens of American citizenship cast upon me. But my first allegiance is to my King Jesus. And I don't be playing around with any of this mixing the old red, white, and blue with the red blood of Jesus. Because you understand this, the United States of America, thank God for this country. Thank God that it had, I don't care, you have to be a completely liberal brainwashed idiot not to believe that this country had Christian uh, influence on it and, and tremendous Christian ethics. But you understand this, that even at its best, the United States of America is just another government of man that if time was to permit, would rise and fall. Okay? And so our allegiance and our, our allegiance, our devotion, and our patriotism should be to the kingdom of God. Because this is the thing, this whole thing, this whole thing can just go up in flames. Talking about the United States government. The United States of America, the whole thing can just go up in flames. And guess what? I'm not moved because my kingdom, my government that I am submitted to has endured for over 2,000 years. And of the incre- and the, because it's on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah, what chapter 9 says, that the government would be upon his shoulders, and of the increase of his government, there'd be, there'd be no end. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. That's why I'm not moved when I hear people talking about, oh, Islam going to take over the world. Oh, boy, Islam is not going to take over the world. The, the only kingdom I read about in the Word, that the increase of that kingdom is never going to end, is the kingdom, the government, the authority and rule of God. Amen? And Daniel saw it. Amen. God even let a, God even let a heathen king get a little glimpse of it when Nebuchadnezzar had that dream about you know the, the image with the head of gold and the arms and chest of silver and the stomach uh, and legs of bronze and the and the leg and the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay mixed and he said he saw a stone cut out of a mountain without human hands and it came down and it smote the image on its feet and destroyed that image and then it and then that stone began to grow and grew into a, a great mountain that filled the entire earth. What did the statue represent? It represented the kingdoms or the governments of man. And what did the stone represent? The kingdom of God. And it came down and it smote the image on its feet and it destroyed those kingdoms and they blew away and it began to grow and grow and grow. The increase of His kingdom, there shall be the increase of His government. There will be no end. Amen? So we need to realize we need to be vested in this. We've got to walk this thing. We've got to realize that God has called us to be shining lights in this world. We've got to be legitimate We've got to be real. We've got to be walking in the blessings of God. Because you understand, in the kingdom, there's, there's blessings, there's privileges, there's benefits to being in the kingdom. Amen? We'll look at just uh, at one of them real quick. Being redeemed from the curse of law. Galatians chapter 3. You thought I'd forgot you there in Galatians. Amen? I'm just going to read. We're just going to take some time. I'm going to read about 14 verses here for you. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, that you're now being made perfect by the flesh? And I'm just going to pause right there for a minute and give you the, little, the background, the context of this. Paul, you know, he had went out, and, and the church of Galatia, if I understand, if I remember correctly, was in uh, was in a province in Asia Minor, what's modern day Turkey, and he had went and he preached and he established his church and he preached salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, and so Paul went around and he was teaching, he was establishing these churches. 
And guess what? You know, Paul talked about over in 2 Corinthians that there was a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him, a thorn in the flesh that has been erroneously interpreted as sickness and disease upon him. Don't you know, brother? Don't you know Paul had ophthalmalia or whatever the name of it is, and he had these big bloody and pussy discharges coming out of his eyes. Don't you know? Where's that in the word? I must have missed that because I've read the New Testament through several times. Dozens of times. I've read the Bible through a couple, you know, dozen times. I must have missed that. I missed reading where, where, where Paul said, You know how when I came to you I had these big pussy and bloody discharges coming from my eyes. I missed that. Where does it say that? It doesn't say that, does it? Okay, Paul said there was a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me. Okay? And the, the, the thorn, a thorn of the flesh. Okay? Number one, Paul told you what it was. Is there any place in the Bible where sickness is ever called a messenger of Satan? No. So it's theologically, it's just nonsense to say that a messenger of Satan, that must have been sickness. No, he said, he told you what it was. A messenger. What's a messenger? A person. I have a message for you. I have a message. I got something to tell you. I have something. I'm a person. I got something to. A messenger is a person that has something to tell you. A messenger of Satan that was sent to buffet him. I used to think it said buffet him. No, I'm kidding. Amen. To buffet him, and bu- that word buffet means to strike repeatedly. If you buffet someone, you're striking them repeatedly. And so Paul, he says, you know, this messenger of Satan was given to buffet me a thorn of the flesh. Okay, you study your Bible. Get you a, a Strong's Concordance. Do your little word search. There's only two, uh, two or three other places in the whole Scripture where, it, where that phrase or a phrase similar to that thorn of the flesh or briars to the eyes, something like that, that refers to a thorn being in your flesh. There's only two or three other citations in the entire Scripture. And anybody that knows anything about proper biblical interpretation knows, let the Bible, let the Bible be the first source for interpreting itself. Right? Okay? And, so, and when it's talking about a thorn of the flesh, it's talking about people. The Lord told the people, the people of Israel, He said, if you don't completely drive the inhabitants of the land of Canaan out, any of them you leave, said there'll be, th- there'll be thorns in your side and, and, bri- and, and or thorns in your eyes. There'll be thorns in your flesh if you don't push them out. Okay? And so Paul said, there was sent to me a messenger of Satan to buffet me, a thorn of the flesh, which I besought the Lord three times to take from me. Okay? So he's praying, Lord, just you know, get them out of here. Remove them. Ain't you ever prayed that before? Ain't you ever worked someplace where somebody was just a, like a big old king-size hemorrhoid to you? Amen. Oh, Pastor, you just said hemorrhoid from the pulpit. Yeah, I'm talking real to you, ain't I? And you pray, God, just move them. God, just move them. God, just move them. Or God, move me. That's what we like to say. God, move me and make it a raise with a move. Amen. Ain't that right? That's, all, that's the way we always pray. God, move me and give me a raise, right? And so, but you understand that he's praying about a person. This is what's going on in Galatia. As Paul's went in, he's preached salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And these Judaizers, is what some commentaries call them, they were adherents of, the, of Judaism. And I'll just drop another little bomb on you. This, this is just one of those little FYI statements. Do you know God didn't even establish Judaism? I've said this before. God didn't send Jesus to establish Christianity. And God, and God did not establish Judaism. Moses didn't even establish Judaism. Judaism was a religion that the Jews created while they were in exile. While they were dur- during the Babylonian exile. That's when, syn- when the practice of using synagogues, building synagogues, and worshiping at synagogues, and they, uh, you know, they instituted all these religious rules, 
around what God said to do. Look, you know what? We don't need to add anything to what God said. If we just do what God says to do, we don't need to worry about adding anything else to it, do we? And then, look, just do, just do what he said. And, you know, if you want to make up all these little traditions that, that might not have any contradiction to what God said, be my guest, but let's do the prerequisites first. Okay? You know, if you want to, <laughs> if you want to dress your whole choir up in angel costumes on Sunday morning and have them come down the aisle twirling as they sing their way to the platform, go ahead and do it. Okay? That's not going to upset the word. That's one of those little traditions I'm going to hurt. But let's do the prerequisites first. Okay, let's just let's concentrate on do, let's not do, concentrate on our traditions, and that's what too many churches have done. We're going to concentrate on our tradition instead of what God says. But anyway, you understand that Paul he's going and he's preaching salvation in, by faith in Jesus Christ. He's getting people born again, and he's getting them filled with the Spirit. Amen. Amen? Say, so, oh, where does that say? Uh, look, I, I don't have time to talk about it this morning, but you know, if you if a person's interested in it, we can prove to you by Scripture that every place, every account in the Bible. When so, that 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 being set in the book of Acts, you look at the book of Acts, being saved, being filled with the Holy Spirit are different. Uh, they, it can take place; it can take place simultaneously, but it takes place subsequently also. But you have to become that new wine skin before you get filled with new wine, right? And I'll go you one more. We can look at every account in the book of Acts, and we've taught on this before. When people got filled with the Holy Ghost, that they spoke in tongues. Now I know some people they've said you know they got soft. You know, the soft one, they go, well, you know, you don't, you know, they don't necessarily have to. It's it, it, in every occasion, was it five instances in the book of Acts where it talks about people receiving the Holy Spirit? Every place it either says explicitly that they spoke in tongues and prophesied or it's stated implicitly. It is, okay? It really is. But you understand it's that Paul, he's going, he's preaching, he's getting people born again, he's getting them filled with the Holy Ghost, and then here comes these Judaizers behind them saying, Hey, uh, you know we we heard you're a, you know you're a follower of Jesus. Yeah, man, this this guy named Paul came through and preached, and we got saved. We got filled with the Holy Ghost, and he did signs and miracles and and and, and wonders here. Because isn't this what the word says? Let's go ahead and read here a little bit in Galatians a little more. Galatians chapter three says he says, um, "Have you suffered so many things in vain?" This is verse four. If indeed it was in vain, verse five. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So there's miracles going on in the church. There's miracles, there's miracles that are taking place. Okay, what's a miracle? Well, let me ask you. If somebody came in and they were blind and I laid, eyes, and laid hands on them and they got healed and they could see, would that qualify as a miracle? Someone came in deaf and you lay hands on them and deaf ears are open and they hear. So there's miracles going on. Miracles going on. Praise God. Had the, had a good testimony this week. Guy was talking about when he, when his dad was a minister. The person that met when his dad was a minister said his dad would lay hand was was alive. He said his dad would lay hands on people and said he saw cancerous tumors just absolutely just fall off and new flesh grow on their face instantly. Amen. Okay. And so what Paul's saying, is, you know, that's 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 a miracle. I think I think I qualify. Amen. We'll just give that. We'll just give the whole check off on that. That's a miracle, ain't it? You see a tumor fall off of somebody, and new skin grow right back before your eyes. Okay. So Paul's saying, he said, you know, you've you've had this. He said, did you did you get all this? Did you get it by the the did you get it by the works of the law, or did you get it by did you get it by the, the hearing of faith? He said, you know, he said, who's bewitched you? Somebody's came in and they've told you something different because what was going on? Because these Judaizers, they were coming in and they were telling them, that's good, you know, you, 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 you got saved, uh, you got filled with the Holy Ghost, uh, now you need to start observing the law. 
And you start doing all this stuff, and they're like, oh, okay, you know, what, what do you mean? And the, one, the big thing they were jumping on, you need to get circumcised. Amen? They just hounding them people. You need to go get circumcised. Yeah? I remember one of my instructors at Bible school said that when he could just, can you see it, when Abraham, you know, when Abraham uh, had his encounter with Yahweh God, and God said, you know, I'm, we're going to enter into covenant, and this is a sign of our covenant. And he said, and it's going, you're, going to be, you're going to circumcise all the men. He said, can you just see that when Abraham went back to his camp and he said, I got good news and bad news. Good news is we're in covenant with the Most High God, the Creator of heaven and earth. He said He'd bless me. He said every place I put the sole of my foot, I could take it as a possession. He said my, that my descendants would be as numerous as the sands of the sea and as the stars of the heaven. And they're like, woo, that's good news. Well, what's the bad news? And he told them, they said, we got to cut. What? Amen. Good news and bad news. Amen. But you understand, these Judaizers are coming back because what? Because they took pride in that being the sign of their covenant. I'm still wondering who you're going to show that off to anyway. I mean, obviously be one person, right? Hey, honey, we're in covenant. Woo! You know what I mean? And that's when you're married, right? Amen. But you understand this? They're walking around saying, you know, you need to get circumcised. You need to get circumcised and start observing the law of Moses. And Paul was so frustrated with it. Tell me, when, when you've prayed, when you've besought the Lord thrice about something, are you beginning to feel like somebody's a little frustrated? Okay, God, this is the second time I've talked to you about it. I really would like you to change this situation for me. Can you get them out of here? Third time, God, um, maybe you didn't hear me. Maybe you didn't check the answering machine in heaven, but uh, I really got this right. And so you sense a little bit of frustration. You can even get a little more of it here when Paul says, he says, I would that those who trouble you would cut themselves off. Here's a little paraphrase for you. Paul saying, he said, all these people that are running around telling you to get circumcised and observe the law of Moses, he said, if cutting off a little bit's good, I wish they'd cut everything off. If cutting, if cutting a little bit off was good for righteousness, hey, let's just take everything off. Because the word, it literally means emasculate. Everything. There's a, and so can you sense Paul's frustration? Ah, glory to God. I'm preaching to you salvation by faith through Jesus Christ alone. And these guys are coming along telling you, you've got to cut this, you've got to cut this, you've got to cut this. He's like, I wish they'd just cut themselves completely off. He's frustrated. huh? Because this, these are the people he's prayed and asked God. I've besought the Lord thrice to get rid of them. Okay? And so he's praying... And, and reading on that, says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was verse 6, and it was counted him for righteousness. Verse 7, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many are... Uh, for as many as are of the works of the law, are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become the curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. 
Okay? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Just real quickly, one point they said to you, the thing about the law, these people that were going around and saying, you need to observe the law, you need to get circumcised, you need to start going to do this and do that and do this and do that, and, and, and you need to observe all the ordinances of the law. You understand this? Did Jesus teach us that He gave us a new law, which is the law of love, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the new law. You understand that if you follow that law of love, loving God with all your heart, strength, love your neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? Everybody you come in contact with. Not just the people that live beside you. Your neighbor. It's who you are in proximity to. I live in Valdosta, Georgia, but if I take a trip and I go out to Southern California, God, please don't send me to Southern California. But if I did, okay... Guess who my neighbor is? My, you know, some people say, well, my neighbor's back in Georgia. I don't got to be nice to these people. They're crazy. Okay, guess what? If that's the people I'm near, that's my neighbor. And so you understand, and understand the law of love. What is love? Love is I only do that which is to your benefit. It's not a feeling. It, it can have feelings associated with it, and you can cultivate feelings with it. Let's just be real honest. How come there's cultures now, this whole notion of romantic love that's a Western culture uh, myth that really all it is is lust wrapped up in, in, in infatuation and, and sold off and pawned off as real love. Okay? Now, don't get me wrong. You should be attracted to your spouse. You should think your spouse is attracted. You can have romantic feelings toward them. But if that's all love is, what's going to happen? In 52% of the marriages in America, the people are going to get divorced. You know, as soon as I don't feel it anymore. Why in Eastern cultures where they still permit arranged marriages and where the people are taught up and raised that love is a commitment that you make? And you see, this is what's funny to me, is, is in, our, in our culture, in our Western culture, we want to talk about, oh, how backward that is. I bet you if they stacked up their divorce rate compared to ours, they might teach us something, right? Okay? But the law of love is, I am committed to do only what is to your good and your benefit. That's real, that, that is real love. I, I shared this Wednesday night, I believe. I was reading someplace where, you know, we talk about the Greek words that are translated love, and we look at, you know, uh, eros and storge and phileo and, and agape being the God kind of love, and storge being, you know, familial love or, or the love of parents for children and, and vice versa, and eros being passionate love. And I was reading stuff this week that said that really that word eros should not even be translated love, that it's really lust. That passionate burning, oh, I'm burning for you. That, that doesn't fit the category of love. That the ancient, the ancient Greeks used the word eros the same way that people do in our contemporary society when you, know, you hear somebody singing a rock song, uh, you know, I just want to make love to you. They don't mean love. They mean sex. And when people say somebody, well, the, the, you know, somebody hooks up, they say, well, they were making love. No, they weren't. They were having sex. It was, and it was not love. It was, lo it was driven by lust and passion, and it was all of the flesh. Amen. And it had no commitment to it. And so they used, in, in the Greek vernacular, the, you know, they used that word like we use love. But really, you understand that agape, the love of God, which is the, is the law of love that we follow, is I am committed to do only that which is to your good. Amen? I am committed to that. And so if we're following that, that's the commandments that we follow. The law of love. Love God. Do that only that which is good to God's good. How many of y'all know that we got that that we as believers and we as sons of God we, that we make impressions on people about our Father? Amen. It does. 
You want to advertise the fact that you're a Christian and stick a little Christian fish on the back of your car and then you're going to be cutting in and out of traffic and cutting people off? And somebody get up on your bumper and you're going to stab your brake to scare them back off of you? Mm, I showed you. Huh? Somebody cuts you off and you're going to shoot them the bird and you had your bumper sticker that said, meet me in church on Sunday. And you forgot about that, didn't you? I, I was telling them they were number one. That's what I did. I was telling you, he's number one. <laughs> Amen. And you lie. And guess what? The Bible says that because that the conduct of of believers, our bad conduct can give can give uh, the con- bad conduct of believers gives unbelievers an opportunity to blaspheme the name of the Lord. Whew, we need to check the way we're living, right? <laughs> you better be careful. You might flip your pastor off, right? <laughs> That'd be real bad. <laughs> it's happened. It might be accidental or on purpose. You, you never know, right? Amen? Amen? But praise God, you understand this, is that he says that we have been redeemed from the curse of the law. This is the, this is the deal about the law. And we're, and we're going to wrap this up. I'm going to continue this this evening. Amen? It's just too, there's too much to get into. But you understand this, is that in the law, that if you violate it in one place, where is that scripture at? Let me find this real quick. James chapter 2. Turn to James chapter 2 real quick. James chapter 2, looking at verse 8. It says, If you fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Verse 10, For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Uh, And I'm going to give you this, this is the paraphrase. In other words, the law of Moses was was an all or nothing law. It was an all, and that was a and really let's just be honest that's a real humbling thing because he's saying you know you might say oh my goodness look at that person they just they got into adultery what a trashy what a just a piece of human trash what a whoremongering sorry thing they are they got into adultery and you're the biggest liar in the village Amen. guess what you're just as guilty as they are oh but you know I I didn't do anything as bad as they did they cheated on their wife and I just like mm-hmm yeah. Same God, you know, same God that said, you know, not to commit adultery, said, you know, not to bear false witness. Okay? And so you understand, it's all or nothing in the law. You break it in one area, you could, man, you could have nine of them down pat. If you're talking, if you're talking about just observing the Ten Commandments, you'd have nine of them down pat, and guess what? You break one, guess what? You're guilty of the whole thing. And so you understand this, is that, that with the law... And I, and I hate to end where we're going to end because it sounds like you're coming up on, on a downer. To be continued, it's going to be good. You need to be back here tonight, right? Amen. And bring somebody with you. But you understand that under the law, you violate it in one place, the whole curse comes upon you. There was a curse of the law that when you broke God's commandment, when you transgressed God's commandment, it's like you're guilty of everything. And then guess what? Because you're guilty of it, you've opened yourself up to a curse of the law. Amen. And, and we're going to, and, and let's, let's just turn there real quick. Turn there real quick. We'll get part of Deuteronomy chapter 28. Just going to set this up for you, and we'll, like I said, we'll continue this evening. Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 through 14. The the Lord is pronounced. You know, Moses is telling you this is what the blessings are. 
for being obedient to God and keeping His law and observing His law. Okay, and the blessings are good. How many of us can agree? Blessing good, curse bad. Like I said, I like to keep my theology simple. Jesus did that, didn't He? I don't, I don't like it complicated. Most people, when a lot of people go, well, I'm complicated. How many of y'all know? It's, a, it's so funny. You hear somebody say, you know, when they say, well, what's your relationship status? When it's on Facebook, there's even a choice. It's complicated. <laughs> they came out with a movie called It's Complicated. Okay. How many of y'all know when someone says, it's complicated? I, I, could, I would like to explain it to you, but it's really complicated. It usually means they don't understand it themselves. Ain't that right? I mean, if you hear someone say, well, it's really complicated, that's just, you know, that's doublespeak for I really don't understand it myself and I couldn't articulate to you what it means. Jesus kept it pretty simple, right? You know, like I said, my theology, good God, bad devil. Blessing good, cursing bad, right? Okay, so verses 1 through 14, it talks about it. But verse 15 says, But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all His commandments, all His laws, all His statutes, which I command you this day, that these curses will come upon you. Curse you shall be in the city, curse you shall be in the country. Curse uh, shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Curse shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Curse shall you be when you come in, and curse shall you be when you go out. Amen? Some people go to church and feel that way. Amen? <laughs> I'm cursed when I come in and cursed when I go out. Amen? You need to understand is that... That all these curses, and we'll, this thing, we're going to look at that just a little bit, and we're going to talk about how we have been redeemed from it, is that, understand, Paul, the whole thing he's telling the Galatians, look, you all have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, through, through faith in Him, you've received the Spirit by faith, and now here you've got these people trying to come in and impose upon you the law. Don't you realize the law carries a curse with it? Because you miss it in one place, you've violated the whole thing, and these curses come upon you. And you're going to be bringing a curse upon you. You're trying to get yourself back under a position that's making you a whole lot worse off than what you are. Because Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. I'm going to give you two definitions real quick. Redeem. Well, first of all, curse. What's the curse? The curse is evil or misfortune that comes in response to imprecation. And I had to look that up. Don't feel bad. Imprecation means the pronouncement of curses. Or as retribution. So a curse is evil or misfortune that comes in response to the pronouncement of curses or as retribution for something. Okay? So the curse of the law. It's evil or misfortune that will come upon you as a result of something. But the word redeemed. Paul said, we have been redeemed. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Remember this. To buy up, that is, is ransom, figuratively to rescue from loss, to improve opportunity, redeem. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. I'm going to give you one more thing. If we're going to end this thing on a good note, I ain't going to end this on a bad, on a bad note here. We're going to end this. You understand this? Is that what Jesus did on the cross, when Jesus hung on the cross, and he said that it is finished. Remember when Jesus hung on the cross and he gave up the Spirit and he said, it is finished? That phrase, it is finished, if you'll look that up, you study it out, it, literally, it, it, it could literally translate to paid in full. What he said was a Greek word that meant the, the, settlement, the, the final settlement of a debt. It is finished, paid in full, debt paid. It's been redeemed. 
In other words, because we were under the curse of the law. And you understand that where the law, that there was no sin until the law came, right? Is that what the word says over in Romans? The, 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 because the, the, when, the, when the law came, sin was pronounced. Because, you know, if you're doing your own thing, and there's no, if there's no rules, nothing you're doing is breaking the law, right? Okay? What about, okay, you're on the Autobahn in Germany, and there's no posted speed limit. If you're going 120 miles an hour, are you breaking the law? Nope. If you're going 150 miles an hour, are you breaking the law? No. Why? Because there's no law. But if they go out in the Autobahn, they stick a sign that says 75 miles per hour is the speed limit, and you're still driving 125 miles an hour, guess what? You're breaking the law. You become a transgressor. And there's penalties that go along with it. But you understand that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, the things that we did. Because you understand you if you broke the law one time, you told one lie, baby, that is it. You trashed the whole thing. You can just kiss that spotless record goodbye. And all your Sunday school attendance and how you dress yourself up and how you polish yourself up on the outside and all this good-looking stuff you do to the outside, guess what? You're still a sinner until Jesus makes you a new creation in Christ Jesus. And Jesus has redeemed us. He's bought us back from the curse of the law. He's made you that new creature. And because He's done that, He's redeemed you from the curse. And the church needs to get a hold of what are the benefits and the privileges of having been redeemed. Glory to God. Oh, I get to go to heaven when I die instead of hell. It's been watered down to that, though, hasn't it? And we wonder why people want to wait till they're dying to make Jesus their Lord. Huh? Amen? There are privileges, there are benefits to being redeemed, and we're going to talk about that this evening. Amen?